John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1172.ps3303, certificate number 52239, Sling Ting Rhythm. Ken, I know you love reggae music. You, you always see me in a variety of reggae t-shirts when I come to your house. I do. Sometimes that big, um, a big Rasta hat with the, with the, the fake, with fake the dreads, fake dreads. Yeah. <laughs> like the one you're wearing right now. Yeah. What, that says uh Jamaican bobsled team on the front. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but no, seriously, how do you feel about reggae? And I mean, I want you to, you don't, you don't have to tiptoe around it. Let reggae it is, is weirdly for some reason, a controversial music genre. Uh, at least in our time, because there are all these people that are like, I don't like country, Western and reggae when, and usually they say those things unsolicited. Nobody asks them what kind of music they want. Like, yeah, This is okay. a rare chance for me. Somebody's actually like, Ken, what do you think about all genres except rap and country? And I can be like, I like them. Uh-huh. Um, but are you somebody that, that, um, that has a reggae vibe? Do you, do you feel Irie? I feel like it's going to get a little less iry in here if I actually talk about how you feel about how reggae. I feel about reggae. Are you okay with that? I, you know what? I'm I'm here at, of the two of us. I will be the reggae uh, booster, and oh. then you can say whatever you like. And then Jaw can strike me dead. Yeah, Jaw's not one of those. Jaw's not one of those gods. Jaw's pretty he's, chill. He's not going to. He's well, no, he's a god. He's not chill. Gods aren't chill. He doesn't partake. Name one chill god. Um, <laughs> yeah, see, uh, maybe man, Krishna now. The more you think about it, Krishna's not chill. Maybe Vishnu's chill. Is Dionysus chill? He just wants to party. Yeah, I, guess I mean, so, Pan's not chill because Pan's kind of rapey, but maybe Dionysus isn't Dionysus a little bit rapey? Probably they, all the Greeks, were. All, all the Greek gods, yeah, and none of the Meso all the Mesoamerican gods are oof. Right. A lot of ripping hearts out. Re- real aggro vibe. Yeah. Uh, maybe like Unitarian Jesus? Yeah, Unitarian Jesus. He just likes to play the guitar. We love you, Jay. Look, I'm not saying that that Jaw is not a... I'm not, I'm not making any comments about Jaw. Let's just put it that way. 
I have no stand on like Jaw's personality. Sounds like you're a little afraid of what might happen. <laughs> I just don't want if you were to take a stand I, on Jaw. I just don't want to take a stand on Jaw. But so, how, where, where, what is your relationship to? I think that a lot of people our age and our uh, uh, race <laughs> have the experience in college of being exposed to reggae by the wrong. By a poster. Yeah, by the wrong culture, where <laughs> you hear reggae associated yes. with things that you think are, are dumb. That's correct. Yeah. And when you say our race, a lot of people don't know what race we are, and I think we should keep that mystery up. That's right. We are an indeterminate Some race. people have seen the photo that comes up on their podcast app, but if you haven't, you don't know. But I think it's, it isn't racially determined. It's probably a class issue if you went to college in the 80s that's exactly, or 90s. That's exactly what it is. Like, I am not one of these... You know, no rap, no country guys, because I'm exactly the right age to have 100 favorite hip hop acts and 100 favorite country acts. Right. Um, you know, maybe not always the my friends chart topping ones, but with reggae, it is absolutely the problem that all my cultural associations are doofuses. <laughs> when you hear that that piccolo snare, bip, bip, you're just like, get me out, I'm e- out. Even just the beat, uh, the local um, college radio turned. Public radio station here plays reggae every Saturday morning, which was for many years the time I was most likely to be in my car running errands. And from 9 to 12 noon on Saturday, I had to put up with Positive Vibrations, (laughs) a show which did not give me (laughs) positive (laughs) vibrations, even though I'm sure they were playing a very beautifully curated spectrum of of island music. Massive positive vibrations that come from that show. Uh, But not in our car. In our car, that immediately was enough for me to like switch over to the metal get, station. Get the well, there's no other stations. I mean, it was just trying to find some Joe Pernice on my phone or something yeah. to, to drown out the the reggae beat. Just because I you, know, you can turn with, the radio off, you know, you don't have to drown it out. Yeah, I wasn't playing both. <laughs> I kept for like, let me be very it. clear. I kept the reggae on. <laughs> you just turned your. But I just, was like, what if Wilco's playing a little bit louder on a different yeah, device? That's why your kids are like they are. <laughs> So yeah, it was just a, it's a, I associate it with kind of um, awful kind of Jimmy Buffetty reggae covers of, of uh, pop music. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just, just some, some dopes at a cookout in Magnuson Park blaring a reggae cover of Hotel California. Just, even just hearing the beat is enough for me to think, well, this is not my thing. I can't argue with the disavowing bad reggae versions of things. Oh, I thought you were going to be super in favor of bad reggae covers. Of no, things. and you know, it's one of my, it was one of the, the, the things that made it difficult for me to like the clash. And I know that's going to scandalize <gasps> the 4% of this, uh, of our listeners who still believe that the clash, the only 4% matter. that matters. <laughs> um, but you know, the clash, I mean, the pretenders first album has two tracks on it that are reggae derived. The police. I was going to say are almost entirely a reggae ripoff. But act. the problem is that the reggae ripoff acts like the police and the Clash. Because I came upon them sideways, yeah. I don't even I don't even hear it. Right, you know, which is me not being very fair to dancehall and roots and other kinds of. Yeah, 
I mean, no, it's it's okay if 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 you like the reggae made by white English people in the late 1970s. What if I just think it's 100% better? <laughs> That's okay, right? 100 times better. How do you feel about it when Eric Clapton steals <laughs> reggae beats? <laughs> See, that's an I mean, that's the kind of uh that's where I hear it as reggae and not just as Oh, it's so cool that these new wave guys came up with this sound that, that, that seems to border on reggae. What's interesting is that I think I heard the police and Bob Marley simultaneously. I mean, I was introduced to both things at the same in time. In your car, you had them both playing? They were both playing. Which one, one did in you one drown speaker, out? One in the other. But I did not hear the clash until a little bit later. I was not, you know, like I was a combat rock Clash it depends on which guy. album you listen to, right? How how uh, whether the reggae is going to be up to eleven or not? Because in in 1980, 1980, I was way a Sex Pistols. The Sex Pistols were my Stones versus Beatles Sex Pistols clash, and I was Sex Pistols all the way. And there's very little reggae in the Sex Pistols. <laughs> <laughs> Few would argue it with really, that with that topic sentence. They are not very Irie at all. What is the band with the least reggae? And if it's not the Sex Pistols, it's got to be the it? Pixies, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, even Nirvana has more you you, reggae than the Pixies. Well, I mean, at least surf rock has uh, has an island connotation. <laughs> but surf it's, rock's it's, all made by. Californians, right? Sure. It's a, yeah. it's a different ocean. Um, but yeah, I guess I was lucky enough to get exposed to reggae before it had become. You got uh, it on the ground floor. Well, no, I was still, you know, a, a kid and B it, it had become, it was on the threshold of becoming a popular music, but it wasn't yet. It hadn't yet been turned on its head by by the white baseball caps. By potheads. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's the same. It, I mean, it, every style of music that's cool risks being tainted by the people that listen to it. There's no, there's no underground it's, it's music. It's not just risk. It happens 100% <laughs> of the time. No, what, what genre are you thinking about that has not been tainted by? Oh, boy. What, 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 uh, what hasn't been ruined? Gosh. I'm sure there's something right now. I'm sure our millennial listeners are like, no, you... There's some music that hasn't been ruined. It's like this Australian, but it's all dance hall now. It's all, there's no, well, I'm not going to be it's one of those techno. olds that says there's nothing new under the sun. Everything's auto-tuned, Because Ken. of course there's, there's always something new under the sun, but, but no, I always loved reggae. And of course I was also a stoner for a long time. So it may discredit me. As a as a uh, as a witness. Well, tell me this: is that purely cultural, or is there? Do you think there's actually inherent qualities of the music that are chemically enhanced? Like no, is, no, is no. reggae the perfect genre for certain for certain recreational? Drugs? No, I think. I mean, one of the things about reggae is that you know, on the on, in the main, the tempos are slower, um, and yeah, certainly the uh, there's a lot of lyrical content that is uh, sensimilia based. What and. Uh, and also, I thought they were just getting high on life, those guys, like it, John Denver. It's the whole thing about the, the, the 1970s, the popularization in America of Caribbean culture that was partly a, a sort of, uh, well, a lot of it was cocaine-fueled, but, but it, it became, it was the place that you would yeah. kind of get off the grid, get a sailboat, go live down there. That's and the it, Jimmy Buffett thing I'm talking It had already yeah. passed through, you know, not just Billy Ocean, but like... 60 Applebee's ads by the time it got to me. Yeah. And I think er earlier on, it still felt like, oh, that's, this is where you go if you, 
you know, if you were the original guitarist of the Eagles and you just couldn't hang anymore and you wanted to just live a, a carefree life, that 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 connection with um, that that often happens when people in the North think of the tropics. Uh, they think of it as a place where nobody works. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and what know. they mean is a place where I will not work. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, and then and then of course that became mainstream culture here with Miami Vice and and definitely more on the cocaine side. Uh, but Jimmy Buffett being more on. But the, it's supposed the to be so side. chill there. I know it's really not that chill actually. Um, but but listening to reggae music, the it is. It is the the music that spawned a hundred genres, and I don't just mean uh, ska, but it's really at the it's it's the kind of forefather of all hip hop. Um, and a real issue with me with getting my mind around reggae music is just understanding the the order and the relationships between not just one but dozens of different kinds of music. Uh, it's a little bit daunting. Yeah. Well, the whole concept of putting on uh, a record that's made out of, I mean, uh, and originally vinyl records that are just drum, drum and bass, not loops, but cuts, mm-hmm. and then performing over that, uh, that's sort of a, it's a, it originates in reggae. Now it's 110% of all music. It's 110% of all music, right. And, and that was, that was difficult. Uh, well, I guess it, I guess it was a, a very creative process and when we think of dub music, I think most people assume that that means that you're dubbing something, dub being a word to mean, you know, taping over or taping on, t- taping on top of. And is that, how, is that why it was used? Because they were well taping new vocals on top of the original, the original etymology of dub is that a dub was a, was a vinyl acetate of a new record. Right, it was kind of the first unreleased copy. This was its first dub, and that was what that was the name of the actual vinyl. And within the reggae kind of toasting culture, to get a um, like a, a like an unreleased vinyl, and then essentially to to rap over it or to sing over it, you know, these dubs were were like prized things to have because you're there the culture of music in Jamaica often involved uh, big sound systems and playing records and toasting over them and it was a it was a there was a actually a competition culture um where that was called sound clash where different producers would actually arrive with their own sound systems and play music in a almost a sports competition and huge crowds would gather and you know this producer with his sound system yeah it kind of implies that a lot of it is a is a technical yeah that th- they would play for play their jams for 15 minutes the crowd would respond and then their time would be up and the next producer and his speakers and amplifiers would do his 15 minutes and so what's competing the equipment or the the whole the whole experience mm-hmm. and the crowd would would vote by virtue of a thing called um forwards which basically means they would surge toward the sound mm-hmm. system that they like the best bum rush the stage yeah but, 
Wait, are they really? Oh, and it's different sides of the room. I different, see. No, different, like out in a public square. I see. So you and, just head toward what you... Yeah, and sometimes there'd be multiple uh, producers with multiple sound systems, and it'd be a process of elimination. So by the end of the night, there'd just be two you know, against each other. Oh, and the amount of time you got to play would reduce until it was just like, you get five minutes, you get five minutes, and the crowd's going back and forth. I mean, it sounds super fun. We're in sudden death overtime. <laughs> it does seem like a battle of the bands done right. And it seems it was very loud, and the and bass played a major role in it. So, you know, it, it, we see it in, in the culture of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, the idea of pulling up with your car that has an, a massive sound system. Thumping. and trying to send that base information. And, you know, in Jamaica, you could put a system together that would send the base signal across the bay and people hearing you miles away. So it was a whole, um, it was a whole kind of culture that predated what later became. Why did this start in Jamaica of all places? I mean, I know that's getting a little big picture and off the track. I mean, there's, there's huge African diaspora communities in the U.S., much bigger ones in the U.S. and parts of Europe, maybe. And it's interesting because it's reciprocal between Jamaica and Britain, because right, right. Jamaica is, was a British territory colony, and even into the seventies, you know, uh, uh, there was a large Jamaican community in England, and the whole rise of reggae and ska. You know, the, it's it's right. recognized all those, um, that all those lovers rock artists of the kind of the end of rock steady, like that's kind of a London scene, right? Yeah, More yeah. than a Jamaican scene. Yeah, but but and I found I liked that music a lot when I discovered it and and you know came to it really late. But Jamaicans in London, yes, right. So and it's and West Indian, really full of the rock and roll energy that's coming there and then bringing it back, and mm. you know that's like a whole separate universe. So it's kind of the interplay between. I mean, we're, we're, we expect the interplay to be between America and X, whether Always. that's America and the Caribbean or America and West Germany or America and Scandinavia. And here it's very much like we're off the grid. It's, Although, it's the West Indies and their, and their former colonial occupiers. But the, the, the conversation becomes a triangle because, you know, British rock scene is, is really based on a communication between America and Britain. And then what happened is soul music in the United States opened a new axis of the triangle because Jamaicans and the and soul music really there was a there was a lot of the rhythms of soul that we think of later being all the the music that that got sampled to make the it was the foundation of hip hop yeah um, that music was already being sampled in Jamaica. Was it the same breaks sometimes? Same breaks. Huh. And, um, and it's complicated to use breaks in a completely analog environment because you really are up on a turntable. You got you to gotta nail that. And you're trying to get that, uh, you're trying to get that constant sound. And, and so what would happen is a lot of the producers in Jamaica would take those breaks, make new LPs out of just the uh, proto, pre-sampler, yeah. samplers, but, but they would... They'd find those loops, they'd build those those dubs, and then DJs would have their own vinyl that was, you know, King Tubby famously, right, was a, was a Jamaican producer that had these, you know, would create these uh, samples. Yeah. Um, 
backing tracks that then more music, then music would get made over. So that was analog samples, analog samples. So that was all, that was all, it was, it was a, it was a circulating kind of ecosystem that produced the, the, not the foundation of reggae, right? Because the foundation of reggae is happening in this, you know, this complicated universe of a few artists that were, that were really pioneering a, a way of using the electric bass that had not, I mean, and that's part of my fascination with it is still, it's the bass lines that I can't, it's like listening to Cuban music and trying to figure out the rhythms, trying to figure out what the, the bass play, the bass lines of reggae, of good reggae really are intellectual to me and I can't, and I'm not smart enough to understand them. It's unfortunately, like, it's like the math rock or prog rock of baselines. Yeah, well, they're just. What, what does it sound like? Is it like? Am I? I'm kind of picturing some, you know, Motown, James Jamerson kind of a baseline. If but. you take the if you take the other elements away and just listen to the bass on some of your favorite Jamaican hits, you know, some <laughs> of the most popular uh, reggae hits. If you just solo the bass, you it's. Um, you're on a journey. I mean, I love rock with a super kind of melodic bass line that's just going all over the place. Yeah, yeah, and 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 soul, right? I mean, as you're yeah. saying, James Jamerson, yeah. like those bass lines are not just just following the root, and they're yeah, derived from jazz, right? That relationship, unexpected, which is also too too smart for me. I've been listening to the jazz station lately, and again, I zoom in on the bass lines, and I feel so often left behind no it's probably making you smarter at it some is, point you're sure. going to start finishing math equations on an mit blackboard because you were because you've been listening to to miles there's only one reason that i'm as smart as i am and it's because i don't understand jazz but i won't you leave won't it alone up. you're like a dog with a trombone <laughs> like i know that there's something here for me i just can't find it but by the by the early 80s, and this is going to sound... Racist? No, never. <laughs> this is going to sound mu- musically... It's, it's, it, it could be considered a, uh, a controversial statement. But a lot of the, the uh, backing stuff, the, the, the loops, the, the dubs, mm-hmm. it was all getting a little played. Um, I've heard that. It's so funny that you'd think it would just be inexhaustible. But, but apparently there were like, you know, a hundred good ones and there were eight great ones and people just got sick of them immediately. You in, know, the rhythm in breaks. In early hip hop as well as in any other genre. I mean, what you're looking for is a few bars where a drummer is just killer mm-hmm. and then a really good loop of it. And there are some that are just when you listen to them, they're just head and shoulders in terms of vibe. It's just so funny. These, these drummers or whoever didn't know they were doing this, but they produced this incredibly rare, only a few dozen things that could have founded a new genre. Yeah. They were just in the zone. And there are so many videos on YouTube of drummers, good drummers trying to duplicate these loops. And it's the ineffable, quality of art they play the loop then they play along with the loop then they play their version of the loop and it's like yeah good job dude but that's nowhere near 
what that loop is. And it's a combination of sound, of course, like the, recording. the power of the recording, but just the uh, magic of of live music, of playing music. But to to people with a discerning ear, yeah, after you've heard a few breakbeats, after you've heard a breakbeat 500 times, you're not as motivated, you know, it's not, it doesn't feel creative. You're going to start running to the other stage. And for, you know, the, your, your basic connoisseur or anybody that that's listening to music, maybe you don't notice, maybe you don't notice that your five songs are five favorite songs are all based around one, uh, five second long loop of a, of a drummer in the 1960s who was just trying to fill some space before the chorus. I mean, we did talk about how, how, how attuned our, mental processes are and memory is toward music in particular sound and music in particular. So, you know, I think we actually are pretty well trained to be like, Oh, this sounds familiar. Like I, I think in general, even a layperson does notice, Oh, this is the break from, yeah, that's just how we're wired. And in searching for new and better breaks. And the great thing about using breaks is that you, you don't need a band. It's a, it's a democratizing technology because it's very hard to get five great musicians to be your backing band genius of hip-hop and it's expensive for yeah. to get those instruments to those five to those five. you know that's why music was coming out of the suburbs and not out of the cities because right. of the barrier to entry yeah the cost of a bass guitar and amp and hip-hop fixed that prohibitive um and the other problem with deriving great breaks from uh from the records of the 60s or fifties is that for most of the, of the uh, three minutes of that pop song, there's a lot else going on on the track. I mean, the breaks are, are you, the first thing you have to do is find five seconds where it's just the drummer. And that's rare in most um, recordings, right? It, it requires that there be a breakdown and most songs don't have it. And so in f trying to find other breaks, there were, I mean, you had to do a lot of production uh, and taking... Dropping stuff out. Yeah, to, using, using studio techniques to eliminate other tracks and then adding other things in in the form of, you know, deep reverb, other sounds to mask the ghost of some bass line that you're, that you're trying to work around. Mm -hmm. And that developed, again, in Jamaica, kind of studio culture of people that were just out searching. And I... Uh, I was in Jamaica one time with my friend David Reese, who um, who was the comic book artist of Get Your War On. Get Your War On. And he said, you know what I'm going to do today? Like, let's go out and uh, in Ocho Rios and look for dub dubs, like vinyls, um, made in Jamaica of great breaks that date from the sixties. And we spent all day walking around this town, asking everybody we met, like, where do we find these? And they would send us to a little place and the guy would go, Oh no, we don't have that, but there's a guy. And we finally ended up at a, you know, a little hole in the wall shop where he was selling whatever electronic, any kind of electronic stuff. Yeah. And he was working on old record players and whatnot. And we're like, look, we're looking for these stubs. And he said, huh, hang on. And he opened up a hatch in the floor 
and went down. There's in, a secret subterranean Jamaica? <laughs> he went down into the basement and we're like, oh, we did it. You know, this is it. He and comes he, back with a machine gun. He, <laughs> he started firing from down. Killed everyone. He came back up and he had a stack of records that were covered with mud. Yeah. And he said, there was a big flood and my shop got all flooded, but you know, I was able to pry this little stack of records out of the mud. And I definitely felt like, well, they're pretty ruined, but David swore like, no, I want them all. And the guy felt like he had a crazy person. And so he was like, yeah. Could you tell what they were? Were they anything good? Or yeah, yeah. Were oh, they, yeah. they weren't just like some random. No, you scrape the label away and it's, you scrape the mud off the label and it had, you know, it was a label and it was from, but it, but it felt kind of hand done. Right time, right place. And it just seemed like, oh, these would be great if they weren't covered with mud. But David said no. And the guy was like, okay, 20 bucks each which is crazy. You know, they should have been a dollar. And Dave was like, sold! And <laughs> handed over all this money. And the guy was like, you guys, okay, great. You know, Suckers. thanks for coming. And we were out in some neighborhood, nowhere near uh, anywhere. But David got, what would it have been? Five or six sides. And he took them back and meticulously cleaned them. Yeah, and you can clean vinyl. Yeah, and, uh, and he came up with all these great tracks that, Maybe we're lost to time. I mean, how many of these were made, right? Sure. There were only uh, you you could you'd make a l- very limited pressing and part of the, part of the limitation was was its appeal because somebody was doing a sound clash and these were records that they wanted that no one else had access yeah, to. Yeah, who knows if those ever got off the island. Uh but but David didn't I don't think turn them into smash hits. I want to hear him rapping over all these. I kind of do too. I know he never rapped over them. And you know what? He never sent me really clean MP3 files of it so I could rap over them. Anyway, fast forward to uh, a period. Well, not fast forward. We were already there. A period in the early 1980s when the uh, reggae culture was booming and uh, within Jamaica, there was a, there was a new kind of generation of young artists that were trying to evolve the the game a little bit and but 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 again kind of still stuck using these these played out cuts a young artist by the name of Noel Davy uh had a friend named George Hay who was going on tour in the United States these, with, these are Jamaican artists. These are but. Jamaican artists, and and George Buddy Hay was on tour with a uh, with a Jamaican group called the Wailing Souls, and they were doing a U.S. tour, and uh, and Davy said, "Hey, while you're on tour in the U.S., will you will you buy a synthesizer and bring us back a synthesizer?" This was at a time when synths were. Also becoming, I mean, they they were fairly new, but also now becoming somewhat affordable. Still way expensive. And but, but it's no longer a wall of wires at your house, it's right? It's no longer you, a wall you, of wires. You can hear them on records. It's and, no longer a $10,000 investment. It's still a $2,000 investment, which in 1984 was, was a barrier to entry. But also they were just hard to come by in Jamaica. You couldn't just go down and buy a, a Juno... 60 at your at your local store Uh 
And it was the dawn of the DX7 era. And I've been meaning to do an omnibus on the DX7, and I will. Uh, the DX7 does not play much of a role in this episode, except that the DX7 was really what Noel Davey was thinking of when he asked Hey, to buy him a synthesizer and bring it back. He was hoping for a Yamaha. He was like, come on, man, you know, bring me a synth. And he was a promising artist and he had kind of a lot of support from, uh, from the local community. But when the synth arrived back in Jamaica, and I had this experience many times with my father. Hey, will you get me a... <laughs> give me the cool new... Give me a Nakamichi tape player. And my dad would come back with a Michi tape player that cost $75. What's the Simpsons joke? <laughs> the, the, the TV is Sorny or something? <laughs> sorny. These are all... These, these Sorny TVs aren't working. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I had the Stadia version of the Nike uh, red and white shoe. Yeah. But the DX7 was a $2,000 synth at the time, and... Uh, what came back to Davey was a Casio keyboard called the MT40. Let me see. Because this is around the time my like music and digital hobbyist dad was getting into synthesizers. He did not have an MT40. I think instead of the DX7, he did get a Casio, but it must have been a later iteration. Well, there were so is, many... Is the MT40 uh, not part of rock history <laughs> well the mp40 did be mt40 did become a, a major part of rock history but the cassia tones casio was a was an electronics company from japan that was basically a calculator company they made yeah um they made watches and calculators that were that were uh, a cash cow for them and their music division was a was a kind of labor of love or a, uh, a, what would you say? A, a, a lost leader almost. I mean, they were making, they were making keyboards because they were trying everything. Uh, and Japanese electronic companies at the time were, uh, were kind of killing it. So what, what kind of, what kind of Casio did, did your dad bring I'm back? I'm looking do you think? right now. It's definitely in the CZ line. Oh, fancy. Are those nice? I mean, he was, he was very into, you know, he got an Atari ST just so he could do MIDI programming, sound programming between his, his synthesizer and his computer. I think it had this two of these pitch bend knobs. I think it was the CZ3000, now that I look at it. That's pretty hot keyboard. He was serious. Well, the, um, the Casio lines, I mean, when you think about the golden age of synths, uh, there was a golden age of synths. Oh, for sure. How come we can't just make those today? Like we can, <laughs> but but what happens with synths is the original synths were all analog uh, sound generating, where you would, as as the user, would actually have control over all the different envelopes with your with knobs and switches. Yeah, and you could generate analog tones. A lot of them were monophonic, meaning you could only make one sound at a time. Um, and then polyphonic synths developed and, uh, and there was this kind of era where there were these beautiful, originally all analog. And then increasingly what you would have is a digital sound that then you could manipulate with analog controls. 
and that became more affordable, uh, although still expensive. And you know, all these wonderful, like the Roland Juno series and the uh, the Yamahas. That it's all the music that you heard in the 1980s. We're all coming out of these wonderful machines. And there's maybe like you know 50 voices tops. You you recognize the sounds. And then over time, it, they became all digital. And the manipulation of the sounds was was happening. I mean, it was all kind of presets. You could manipulate preset sounds, but you would manipulate them also with digital controls. Mm. And then later, emulations, so that I think there are a lot of people that would... I mean, it's two sides of an argument. There are a lot of people that would say that... Now we are able just in the box to make any sound that came out. That's what I would assume. You can buy a little tiny box today that has every synthesizer made before 1995. And the other argument is the same with the drum breaks. There's this, there's the ineffable. That's the, that's the vinyl versus compact disc argument. Right. You've lost something. And, and there, it's compelling an, an argument because there's a lot of sound. When you're in the recording studio, if you mute all the sounds above a, a level that's no longer audible to the human ear, you notice a change. Huh. If you mute all the sounds below where the human ear can perceive, you notice it. What does that mean? Some other part of your body, some non-ear part of your body can tell what's missing. Your eyelashes now. Right, or the sounds at different, uh, at different frequencies are interacting with each other in a way that the sounds you do hear are changed by the absence mm. of the sounds you don't. But and that's true. And there's there's ghost in the machine at every level of music, um, where things that, well, it's just like when you tune a piano. If you tune every note on a piano perfectly, the piano sounds terrible. You have to tune a piano to itself. And as you get further out on the keyboard, you actually have to tune those notes wrong. They're not in tune with their perfect hertz of that note. They're in tune with middle C. If they're right, it sounds wrong. If they're right, it sounds wrong. So you have so a pian- That's why a piano tuner, a piano tuner is an artist. Who starts in the middle? Starts in the middle and works out and and then is constantly referring back because the the notes have a relationship to one another. So there's, I mean, so much in music that you can't that does not submit to science. You'd think it would be a science, yeah. And yet, because it is math. But, and I think that's out. It's also psychology. Yeah. And out at the level of theoretical math where it's like numbers, but are they? Yeah. This is what it's going to turn out to power quantum computing. Yeah. We're going to discover something unresolvable or incomplete about the universe by. Right. These numbers. Studying a baseline. At a certain, at a certain somewhere out there, the roads just uh, like get infinitely closer, but never intersect. We're going to get faster than light travel out of, uh, out of a synthesizer at some point. Spring is here, John. Spring is sprung. I'm so into it. The The grass is green. The birds are singing. Do you have a spring look you'd like to announce? This is the fashion portion of the omnibus where you announce what's in for spring. Uh, colors. <sighs> colors. 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 I love it. How about colors. Me? How about- colors. <laughs> yeah. Gang colors are in. <laughs> Dive for your life when your shotgun scatters. How about like maybe cuts or fashion? Yeah. 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 Colors, cuts, fashion. I think style. Style. Style is going to be big this year. You know spring. what? Style's back. <laughs> Style is finally Style's back, back in a big way. You know who's the expert when it comes to stylish essentials, John? Me, me, me. In addition to you. My daughter. 
your in addition to you and your daughter. She's very into stylish, fashionable. But number three on the list. Yeah. No less than Mac Weldon. I was about to say Mac Weldon. Mac with a K. Mac Weldon, they've got sweatshirts, they've got sweatpants, and wait, sweat shorts. Is that even a thing? Sweat shorts. It's a new thing I mean, that you, Mac Weldon is premiering. You could just buy their sweatpants, mm-hmm. cut them off at the knee, and then you'd have a pair of sweat shorts and uh, maybe two arm warmers? No, why not just get sweat shorts <sighs> right, right out of the box? They feel great. They're really their casual wear is really soft. Feels it nice. Ooh, it's soft. It's good for running. I yep. mean, we're coming out of a pandemic. You might have to leave the house. Uh uh if you want to get into shape yep. before that happens. Yep. Before people seeing you from the neck down. You got all the the options, all of the zip options. You got half zip, you got full zip. Mac Weldon does it all. The daily wear system means you can really wear any of their stuff together. So even if style is not what's back for you this spring, well, Mac Weldon will take care of that for you. Yeah, let me push back on that. You you could not be into style at all, and Mac Weldon is your style. You will look fantastic no mm-hmm. matter how unstylish you feel. A lot of it is water resistant. Uh, it's, it's all eco, e- eco-responsible fabrics. So you know how we feel about Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon's uh, daily wear system, the latest innovation. Give it the program. Follow the science. Colors are in, but also black and gray are in, as always. Check out Mac Weldon for yourself, if you haven't, and save 20% on your first order. We can save you 20%. Visit MacWeldon.com slash time and enter promo code time. Again, that's MacWeldon.com slash time and enter promo code time for 20% off. Find your perfect look for this spring. You better. This MT40 is not one of the great synths because you there are preset sounds but they're not really user manipulated or manipulatable um in the sense of being able to use analog controls to really is it a kind of a starter it's a cheapo starter cheapo starter and i think a lot of people our age can remember a time when um those original casios were kind of in general circulation, like everybody had one in a desk drawer or anybody that was making music. I mean, I had a bin of $5 keyboards that you could find really anywhere. Even now, if you go to a thrift store, there are keyboards stacked up that... My kids have bought them at thrift stores. Yeah, yeah. And you you could fill a room in your house with all the different keyboards that you can buy. And a lot of them actually pretty powerful, they have a lot of presets, and there are ways to manipulate the sound. Well, so so Noel Davy has this cheapo synth, and I'm sure he was disappointed for a minute, but it's also a new thing. It makes new sounds. And so he and his friend Wayne Smith, who's, a, who's also a young um, singer, sit down with this thing, and they go, they're goofing around with it. And they're goofing around with it for weeks, just like, what does this do? What does that do? And it is a little, it is polyphonic. So it's not like the original keyboards, the Casios, you my dad would come down. the second note and the uh, first one would the go first away. first one would go away. My uh, dad uh, brought me a, a couple of those where you couldn't play a chord. Yeah. Um, and the- Nine the, voice polyphony, I see. Yeah, the, the, MT40. the MT40, you could play up to eight notes on the keyboard. It had a, it had a keyboard that was 37 keys. But then you also had a little subsection 
of bass notes. Yeah, over on the left, you can play bass with these little buttons. Yeah, so it had buttons that played. It's like just one one octave and a couple spare notes. And, and just one sound on the bass. Oh, is that right? You know. That's uncanny. It's, yeah, thank you. Does, were you the one that made that noise for them? And you could sample that, and actually. And then they turned that into the... Anyone who wants to... <laughs> use that as a, as a backing track. Uh, and so you could play eight key. You could play an eight key chord with your with your uh, with the five fingers on one hand, and then, or maybe you could play an eight key chord with the ten, with your ten fingers, and then have a friend that's playing one note at a time on the bass. Um, but it had twenty two different sounds, preset sounds. And, and, and you know what was great is it didn't have the thing where you could just press a button and it would play the a backing percussion track from a, from a genre. Oh, it did. It, it, they had that? <laughs> yeah. I thought that would have been later. It had six different could be like, program beats. It could be like funk beat. No, I mean, I had a... I mean, that was what kids loved about those early synthesizers. I had an organ from at my... Uh, it was a made of particle board. It's like the Optigan, uh, an organ from the 1960s that had... And it had backing beats? Well, but... It, and it was... There were actually little levers that you would put up, and I mean, it looked like a, a cheap um, Hammond. Yeah, but it had bossa nova and swing, and always, you know, it's always bossa nova. <laughs> Synthmakers really overestimated the interest America's musicians had in a, a bossa nova backbeat. So this had six beats, and it had a tempo knob, and it had uh, it had a, a button called fill. And if you push the fill button, you could get a little drum fill. It was just a guy, it was a guy named Phil. Yeah, it was Phil. And Phil came in and he was, was like, Phil in accounting. Hi, neighbor. <laughs> you got, got those reports for me? <laughs> so it would, it would just do a drum fill for what? As long as you held it down or, or, or of a fixed <laughs> length? Yeah, you could do it all afternoon. And so this, uh, this little thing, you know, it, it was making all the, and the sounds are terrible. They're just little eight-bit computer uh, computer notes made out of whatever the the using the smallest amount of energy to make a tone. But the tones could be oh, the, I said the word computer, didn't I? Hey, she's found something on the web, John. That is interesting. Whoa. Highest tone is 255. The lowest tone is zero. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people are like, I'm just going to have a tone that's like 400. But Alexa knows. So there were presets of um, of the rhythm tracks. Rock and Bossa Nova. Samba. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so these two, you know, these two kids were sitting and, and monkeying with it. And this was always a thing I, uh, you know, always an insecurity I had as a young musician because I knew so many people that got a new piece of technology, a, a four-track tape recorder or something, and they all they wanted to do six hours a day was sit and play with this and see what it could do. And I would sit and, and monkey with it for six to ten minutes and get bored. I just didn't have that relationship with the, the tinkerers. Yeah, gene. I just you know I'm not. I wasn't trying to make a new sound. All I wanted to do was write wooden ships by uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash again. I didn't understand how they did that, <laughs> and I didn't understand who the people were with the with the uh, the synths. 
I mean, my my experience was limited to a few minutes each of trying each of the funny beats and then playing right. just a one a one finger melody yeah. to uh, to some samba beat and being like, okay, what else we got? And that changed for me in the mid two thousands. I'd worked with so many tinkerers. Um, you know, the the Long Winter song "Commander Thinks Aloud" has no guitar on it. It's all huh. synthesizers, and for the most part, all you know, I played all the tracks with a synth in my lap, just moving stuff around. And then our bass player, Eric Corson had a, had a little micro Korg and all the little kind of space sounds was just him moving around kind of the analog controls of this little digital keyboard. So the whole, you know, the whole track is, is done with consumer grade synthesizers, arguably our, our most well-known song, not even Kitar, not even Kitar. And then, Playing it, you know, duplicating that song live was yeah. How, 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 did was you always do, a challenge? Is there any guitar in the live version? Uh, most of the time, no. Yeah. I would play the the basic part on the keyboard. Eric had his microcorg and then a series of bass pedals on the floor, so he would play the bass with these organ pedals. Wow. And then our drummer Nabil had a sampler that he would, as he's playing the drums, he would also hit s- trigger samples with his drum set. So every once in a while, something that we couldn't do, a violin part, you know, a synthy violin, he would trigger. You've got, you got your drummer playing the violin. Oh, and then we had, and then Jonathan would also, he was, he had two keyboards. So he was also playing, you know, whooshing sounds and, and all that stuff. I love it now. I mean, I'll sit and do a monkey with that all day. I'm picturing like Viv, the spinal tap keyboardist or whatever with his <laughs> Top stack hat. of keyboards. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, these two are, are are screwing around on this thing, and they and very briefly as they're moving knobs, uh, a a sound happens, and it's a combination of a rhythm track and a bass line, and a and a, you know the the keyboard starts to produce this, but they're moving too fast. They uh, a switch gets moved. Before Wayne Smith can say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, but they can tell. Like, for a second, it was good. Yeah, that was it. That was it. But they can't get back to it. <gasps> it's the lost chord. It's because, Arthur Sullivan. That's right, because it's a combination of, you know, he had two things pushed down, and and uh, and Noel Davey had two things pushed down, and they lost it. And so for a couple of weeks, they sat with this keyboard trying everything just to get back to that sound everything to get back to the sound and eventually they did eventually they found their path back to it and what it was was on the mt40 you held the synchro button down you pushed the d baseline button which was you know of the four possible baselines (laughs) this is like a it's like a video game cheat code yeah and then you had the rhythm slider so there's buttons and sliders and the rhythm slider was on rock. You hold the the D bass line down and you push the synchro button. Or you, maybe you push the synchro button and then hit the D bass line. Whatever it is, they got it. They got it back. And they loved it. And they started uh they started work composing over it. We should we know? should we should listen to it now. Yeah. So it's you know, it's very basic and when they originally found it. Their tempo was was pretty pretty way up. They were they were working kind of working on words and and putting together a track, and it was pretty fast because the uh, 
it was a rock rhythm, ostensibly, in the computer. It was meant for rock, which, which to the engineers at Casio, is something in the... No one understands <laughs> rock better than the engineers at Casio. Someone, you know, it's a, rock, it's a tempo up in the 170s. A large mass of stone forming a hill. I didn't know that. I didn't say anything, computer. Oh, to move sway to and fro or side to side. That's actually going to happen here. I'm never going to use a dictionary again. So these, so this is the idea of rock of somebody who's been making graphing calculators their whole life. Yeah, it's all, you know, it's 170 BPM, but the but they're inspired by the sound and they're working hard at a track. And they come up with something cool. And this was a time when, and this is maybe one of the things that that turns you off to reggae. There's a lot of music being made about marijuana. What? Uh, yeah. About the, because marijuana is a religious sacrament to the um, Rastafarians. Mm-hmm. And Rastafarianism and reggae but, became kind of inextricable but from you, one another. But, you know, uh, you know, Western music doesn't have a bunch of songs about uh, our ritual, religious rituals. Hmm, like, interesting. Like we don't have to <laughs> go on. We don't have 150 songs about uh drinking wine? Co- yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> We've got red red wine, but that's kind of a that's got a Scott thing going on. There are uh, so many songs, many songs about How many songs about <laughs> baptism do you know? Uh well, I mean if we go back to 1200, that's correct. <laughs> I guess it's you're in the early years of yeah. a religion. From that means that reggae is eventually going to grow past uh, songs about their sacrament of, of weed, and it's eventually going to all be songs about cars and cars and girls. And girls yeah. yeah, and I think there are plenty of reggae songs about girls, maybe not cars as much, but cars play a lesser role in Did the Caribbean sure? than they do in where would you know, you're going to hit the ocean if you try to drive anywhere. Exactly. But there was a popular track. I mean, there were so many popular songs about uh, about weed, and this was in an era where Sensimilia was kind of new on the weed scene. Uh, in the 1970s in Mexico, some weed growers were developing what, what seems somewhat, um, somewhat logical now from the perspective of uh, weed people of the day, of now, We've got but, uh, we've got decades of weed knowledge they could not even dream of. We do, but in Machoacan, some uh, weed growers figured out. Wait a minute. The reason there are seeds in marijuana, which suck, seeds in your weed, uh, seeds and stems, man. Yeah, they really uh, they really make the uh, the weed experience bogus. Dave's not here. What they figured out was if you could identify the male plants early on when your plants are small and separate the males, they would never fertilize the female plants and the female plants wouldn't make seeds and not making seeds. They would focus their plant energy more on making THC, the the stuff that you do want to smoke. We need lesbian marijuana. Exactly. And so, uh, marijuana that did not have, that was all female plants that didn't have any male plants involved, uh, was called sensimilia, sensimilla. I, we always said sensimilia. I don't know what the real a, word Cause word Amelia is. sounds more like a female. Yeah. Name. Amelia. Nowadays, uh, young pot smokers listening to the show will not even know what we're talking about because in the 90s, they figured out a way to make all the plants, all the, even the seeds female. So there weren't, so male plants aren't even part of a pot growing operation now. It's not like you throw, because it used to be you had to cull uh, 
kind of a, a, a significant portion of your plants if you wanted to get the, the males out of there and not have seeds. Now everything is, I mean, you know, women rule the world and that includes pot plants. Is that the same reason why grapes are seedless now and, and they weren't? Yeah, they've figured out how to how to not fertilize the um, the plants. And they just them, inv- they invented contraception. It sounds like they did. They did well. They got rid of the boys. You got to put little thank little, God little condoms on all your male. Pot and plants. you'll notice that pot is a lot less violent now. It gets into a lot less glo- <laughs> a lot fewer global con- uh, conflicts. And it's so much stronger. It's a strong female protagonist. Well, and that's the other thing, right? It, it you increase the THC until it becomes skunk and then chronic and pretty soon it's a it's like hitting yourself with a with a mallet uh even you're acting like that's the end point no like we're speaking (laughs) to a far distant future where they think of the mallet weed as like (laughs) the weird mellow old stuff it's true i i quit smoking pot in nine or no 2000 uh Jesus. If you can remember what year you stopped smoking pot, you weren't there. What am I talking about? No. 1994, I quit smoking weed, and it was already the uh, the the top level of weed was too much for me. You got out just in time. I was it's just it's stupefyingly stony. And now, who knows? I don't even think you can smoke pot anymore. I think it's become a... People People are just saying they do? Yeah, I don't. I think... It's the same I, cool. I think you look at pot across the room and you're like, whoa, I'm so paranoid. Anyway, there are a lot of songs coming out uh, in Jamaica in the mid-80s about weed. And one of them, popular track by Barrington Levy, was called Under Me Sensei. Sensei being the shortened oh, form sense. of Sensamelia. I and thought he was like I thought he was looking under the robes of his karate instructor. Yeah, that's right. That also that uh, he changed his dojo, and now <laughs> his new sensei stood on top of him as part of his training. <laughs> he had it coming, but he under me sensei. You know, he's under the influence of of sensei, and it was a, a an influential track. And you know, everything in music, it's always borrowing from the thing that was popular a minute ago, and everybody's trying to push the push the thing they hear you hear something new and you're like how do i get that except make it better uh and there was a track by yellow man called under me fat ting and his fat ting is I just his, it's his joint or yeah his ting it's his just his it's a fat joint and he's also under it under the influence of it and so uh wayne smith is coming up with words for his new track and he he makes a jam called Under Me Slang Tang. So he's he's borrowing the under under me some kind and of a Slang Tang is not a, a turn of phrase in, the, in Jamaica at the time. No one sang Slang Tang. Uh but he just it, made up a word. He made up a word that's kind of derived from Sensamelia. His his instead of his sensei, he's saying Slang Tang. That doesn't sound that much like sensei. No, but the thing... And t- Tang comes from Ting, obviously. Tang, tang comes from Ting, which comes from Sling. So he's saying his sensei thing, but it's Sling... But it's not supposed to remind us of slang or sling, like to throw no, or... Not, uh, not uh, overtly. Huh. I think you can go back... Uh, there's a, a thousand theories about what Sling Tang means. Um, and unfortunately... I mean, one thing about working in an altered state is you're probably making pretty organic decisions well and there's a there is a tradition in uh well in a lot of different kinds of music of just using sounds in place of words uh sounds that you know that take you there and slang tang you got to admit i mean just saying it right now don't you feel more chill it's really helping actually say it again 
Under me slang tang. Under me slang tang. Under me slang tang. I don't know. The NGs are a little uh, slang tang. I don't know about the NGs. Yeah, I mean, say it. Uh, say it. At some point, I want you to say it on Jeopardy and all of the uh, in all a, of the in a terrible Jamaican <laughs> accent. <laughs> don't do that. But all of the futurelings will recognize if you say slang or ting that that, that you're hat tipping to this moment. Sling ting. So they come up with this track. They they uh, they lay it down and they take the track to their friend King Jammy, and King Jammy has a a record label. He's making dubs. King Jammy has uh, is has a sound system. He's participating in sound clashes, and he hears this track and he goes, "Yeah, let me let me work with that a little bit." And he slows it way down slows it down to 70 beats per minute. He adds some hand claps. It's more of a reggae pace. He adds a little bit of piano in the in a style that that gives it a little bit of uh kind of chordal structure. And they do this track under me sling tang with this new king jammy slowed down vibe. Uh but still it's the MT40 track. But it's not like anybody else can, like, they just happened upon it. It's yeah. not like anybody with an MT40 is going to be like, oh, they're just using the... No, no, no. It's not a preset like that. They did, even though this is not a, a proper analog synth, they did find, through screwing with it, a sound that, that wasn't available. It's going to sound surprising and original, even to people who know the instrument. So King Jammy takes it to a sound clash. And in the process, he's, he's competing against Black Scorpio... Who has his own? He sounds sound like system. the bad guy on a I know. on a TV movie. How are you going to show up to a sound clash named Black Scorpio when your co- opponent is King Jammy and think you're gonna you're gonna win? That's like the least Irie band name imaginable. <laughs> I know it's just like the plot of every movie. He's like the bad skier, or yeah, or maybe the CIA, uh, or the CIA plant, but. It is overwhelmingly a victory for King Jammy and Under Me Sling Tang. Yeah. So much so that the the crowd just demands that he play Under Me Sling Tang over and over. They're like, we don't want to hear anything else. This is a brand new, it's never, you know, no one's ever heard it before. And it's so good. Black Scorpio stalks away, becomes a Bond villain. That's right. He's, well, Black, and then Black Scorpio ends up, you know, owning all of Jamaica and he's, he's a dictator now. Probably. But it's the first time anyone has heard a digital-sounding rhythm track in reggae. Up to this point, it's all been based either around a live band or around sampled dubs of breaks from the 60s and 70s. In other genres of music, had there been purely synthesized or is this or is this pretty much new for any popular music? No, you've got uh you've got the the music of Kraftwerk and Gary Newman and Oh yeah, this is mid 80s by this point. Yeah, uh, all that stuff had happened a long time before in techno music and in um and it was, you know, a whole aspect of the genre, but if you think about uh if you think about the new wave music of the early eighties, there are a lot of synths in it, but there's a drummer and a bass player, right? Um, so the synths are, are creating the sound. They're augmenting it, but a lot. And, and with the, you know, with craft work, of course, that music 
they don't have like a funky bass player. That, wouldn't that be great though? If Kraftwerk <laughs> did have a like a just just <laughs> like they, like a, like a black guy wearing Kenty cloth, like like he just wandered in from a Talking head show or, or somebody playing a Chapman stick. That'd be great. Uh, but but in terms of and you think about reggae, it's a very organic music. But also Jamaica is not. Uh, the, there's not the money or the or the technology or in a lot of places the reliable electricity to be making yeah. techno music it's a it's a, still an expensive studio creation but it's also not very iry craftwork is not iry you are asking me what the least reggae band is maybe it's craftwork <laughs> it's going to be a shock to uh who do we say it was before pantera no sex pistols so this is this is blowing the mind of the crowd because it's just utterly novel. And they release the record and it goes great gangbusters across the whole of the reggae scene. Somehow it must not just be revolutionary. It must also have tapped into something that's deeply reggae. It's just done it with it from a new point of view with new tech. So it's the, it's different from the baselines that are super intellectual. It's much more it's repetitive, but that repetitive. makes it danceable, I assume. Right. And and um and accessible. Yeah. And the rhythm takes the world by storm, and everybody wants to do a track based on Mislang Tang rhythm. Do people reverse engineer how to do it? Yep. And they also just take it. Oh, they just they just sample it. Sample it and then they use it. Uh, eventually it gets, you know, it comes out how to make it, what the instrument was. And, you know, every one of these cheap Casios, they all are, I think, trying to sound the same, but the, the minor variations in the different designs. I mean, I had an SK one, which was a keyboard from the same period that became a total fetish item in indie rock because it was the first ever sampler. You could push a button on the SK one and talk into it and then it would play it back but you could it would make that a voice so you could do it on any yeah and then you could play it on the keyboard part of it i mean an sk1 is would it would fit in the pocket of your jacket Hmm. but you could play it and it would change the pitch and the tempo of the thing that you'd done so if you were like i want to get out of here and you could make it go i want to get out of here i want to get out of here and sounded terrible but it became a thing that was used in indie rock as a kind of you know like a interesting little thing to add in. I used to find them at thrift stores all the time for five bucks. You could take them to the trading museum and sell them for a hundred bucks. Indie rock is also kind of a low barrier to entry thing. You know, these, yeah, those guys don't have jobs. Well, so, so over the course of the next, you know, uh, few years, it becomes the dominant form of reggae music. Like most, like, what does that mean? Like you'll buy a record and every song uses that, backing track or over, some will or there were over 500 tunes 500 covers wow. using me slang tang rhythm and then i mean a, a new genres were developed dance hall music all of uh all of the music coming out of that culture start i mean and the and the the cultures that derived from it they were like wait all we have to do is get a keyboard and make a cool track and that's the new creativity we're not trying to learn how to play the bass we're trying to learn how to screw with these 
cheapo keyboards. And the thing is you can run those sounds then through any kind of outboard sound processor. You can put reverb and, and delay on them, but you can also run them through flangers. You can do any kind of thing that you can do with any sound, but you have this portable keyboard that becomes your, it becomes an entire orchestra depending on how you use it. And it made, um, you know, it made Wayne Smith briefly like the biggest artist in the genre. He never was able to really follow it up with a subsequent like hit. He's a one hit wonder. Uh, and one of the cultures it spawned was the ragamuffin culture, which was a, a you know, a, a British term that was used as a kind of derisive way of talking about street kids and they repurposed it and it became like ragamuffin. Oh, they took, music. they took ownership back. Yeah. Oh, I see. That was, that was a component of this, uh, of this dance hall trend. Um, but then very quickly, there became an interest in how did this, where did this originally come from? How is this in the Casio? In 1986, there was an article in the Japanese music magazine uh, named Music Magazine <laughs> called the, uh, the Sling Tang Flood. Just talking about how many new songs, how much the genre uh, was reliant on this. And a woman by the name of Okuda Hiroko read the article and said, wait a minute, I did that. She was a Casio. I made this Ling Ting rhythm. She was a Casio designer or programmer. She was, she was a Japanese girl who may, who went to music school and at the age of 20 had graduated from music college and hired by Casio and given the assignment, uh, you know, come up with some rhythms and whatnot for this new, you know, come up with some tones for this new keyboard we're making. One of a dozen different keyboards at different price points. Stop that scratching and give me a beat. And she went to work and programmed a bunch of tones and rhythms into this new keyboard, including the, the rhythm track that had a bass line to the rock preset. It was part of her, uh, you know, part of her like suite of different sounds that she made for the MT 40. And it was, um, so, you know, at this point, Cassia tone was a brand new instrument, right? They had only started making it in 1980. They'd only just branched out from, uh, from calculators and she was a music major, and she was the only one who had had majored in contemporary music. Everybody else coming into the company had backgrounds in classical music, because um, that was what you that sure. was what you studied. There weren't you couldn't get a major in punk rock in a Japanese music academy in the seventies. But your parents definitely made you take. take piano or violin piano, lessons or right. something. And so she was given the assignment: come up with six different. Uh, six different styles of programmed rhythms for rock, pop, samba, of course. And, um, and then three basic chord types, major, minor, and seventh. And so she went to work on these and she came up with this stuff. And the, the amazing thing is that she was a reggae fan. 
as a teenager, she'd gotten into Bob Marley. She had seen him in concert when he toured Japan. Yeah, I I could see Marley being pretty big in Japan at the time. And she she wrote her thesis on reggae for her music degree. Wow. And it was the first kind of popular music. She was, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty adventurous at her college for her to, to focus on reggae. She did not set out to make the rock rhythm a reggae rhythm because it was 170 beats per minute at its preset. It wasn't, it did not sound very iry. It was only when it was slowed way down. And had she never heard or tried it slowed down? No. Ah. Uh, Presumably not. Her subconscious uh, innate iriness is coming through. It was King Jammy that figured out it had this other life. Um, And so when she was making the rock rhythm, this was just a subconscious kind of, yeah, like. This is how I like things to sound. And Cassio, at about this time, realized, wait a minute, there are hundreds of popular tunes uh, now globally because the the rhythm was um, immediately adopted in hip-hop, which also had, up until that point, been based almost entirely on analog samples of drum tracks or live music. And the the explosion of this digital sound, hip hop took it and ran with it. And it was the very beginning of no, 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 let's just create our own beats on keep on these samplers. Had legal battles over samples already started? No, that came later. Yeah, so it was only, live crew early nineties. Right? It was only, no, it was, it was De La Soul. Yeah. Uh, Three feet yeah. high and rising was just a stack of samples, but all of those were, you know, mostly analog samples and that, well, I mean, they were all analog samples. And that was the kind of death of sampling as a, uh, as an art form, because to get all of the, like, you can't get three feet high and rising now in a lot of places, because in order to get the clearance retroactively for right. all the tracks, it, it would cost a billion dollars. So, you know, in Della Soul's catalog, this record, you know, it remains like troubling for the music business. But now you could make whatever loops you wanted with, with, uh, with keyboards and synthesizers. Johnny Law can't touch you. So it, they went, Casio, within their corporate structure, realized, oh, man, we've got, uh, we've got all these uh, hit records. Like, we need to start applying our copyright. But one of the founders of Casio, whose name is Toshio Kashio, uh, and maybe maybe not a coincidence that the company is called Casio, because the family is the Casio family. Yeah, I think that's right. But he says uh, he said at the time within the company there was a kind of a battle between the people that said we should enforce this copyright, and he came down on the idea that no, we want people to use our our machines to make new music. Right. I we mean, don't want to inhibit that. Presumably they didn't think they were protecting that beat when they gave it to everyone. Is there any case law on a synthesizer company trying to claim ownership over its voices? Well, this is maybe the first instance where it wasn't uh, a sound that you made with the machine. It was a preset sound within right. the machine. Right. And so 
arguably Okuda was the one that wrote the music. Um, but Casio came down on the side of public domain. You know, we put this in this machine so you could make music with it. And do we know what Okuda thinks about this? Well, so she was invisible. She never came forward and Casio never pushed her forward Mm. as the woman that wrote all the, the, that wrote this rhythm that, that transformed the music business. Um, and so for, Decades, there was all this speculation. Well, where did Casio get the inspiration? And there were a lot of people that saw the roots of this track in other songs. Um, like, for instance, I think one of the most popular ideas was that the, the 1950s track by Eddie Cochran, Something Else, uh, had a similar. But then also Anarchy in the UK has uh, uh, talk about the I guess the, they are Irie. the least Irie band it turns out they maybe were the most Irie band <laughs> and then also the David Bowie track hang on to yourself all of these were were bandied about as sources of the inspiration for the rhythm track but it was only recently that Akuda Hiroko came forward or was was discovered as the as the source of this sound and when interviewed, she said, yeah, I mean, I'd heard all that music and it was all a part of my just universe, bubble, bubbling around. but I was really just, I was just a reggae maniac. And this just sort of was what I came up with that afternoon at Casio. So reggae is no longer just a triangle between the Caribbean and, you know, Northeastern soul music and London, West Indian music. And now it now has a stop in Japan as well. It has a stop in Japan. It's filtered to Japan and back. So no longer a triangle, it's now a rhombus. Yes, the rhombus of reggae, I call it. Uh, And she, uh, fantastically, still works at Casio. No. Yeah. And she was 20 in 1980, so she's surprisingly youthful and is working on a, her new project is a, a thing she calls the Music Tapestry, which is a sort of something that you might see at the Pacific Science Center in 1979. You wave your your hand and it plays a different color and a different song. Well, no, you play the piano and it throws up pictures Uh, of roses and, you know, it gives you a whole kaleidoscope of of stuff. That's what I want. So she's still, you know, pushing the envelope and maybe the next generation of reggae will also be a visual medium. When people ask me, who's your favorite Asian woman in reggae? I am now going to say Okuda Hiroko until Yoko Ono's reggae album comes out. And that concludes Slang Tang Rhythm, entry 1172.ps3303, certificate number 52239, in the omnibus. We, uh, in our era, were on uh, social media, at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, at Omnibus Project. I mean, if all of you uh, sentient synthesizer preset voices have access uh, to those to that data still... Um, sway your samba your samba beats over to twitter instagram facebook and so forth uh, we were at the omnibus project at gmail.com you could send us uh, things that send us your um send us your old 
Jamaican rare mud covered jams and dubs. Oh, that would be so cool. To PO Box five five seven four four Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five, and we'll uh, we'll send them on to David Reese. And I don't know. is he still is he what does he do? He thinks about pencils now for a little. Oh no, he stopped doing that. No, he started doing actually like uh, circuit bending mods to old vintage pedals, <gasps> and he would hook them up, wow. and he wouldn't even put any uh, like digital information into the front end. He would just make sounds with the pedals themselves and was, like the creak of the pedal is, is now the well but you know you get enough feedback going sure. on in a feedback pedal sure. and then you manipulate that you know uh, circuit benders are a whole subgenre of of digital musician maybe i should do an omnibus on them because they are kooks uh but but he was doing that but you know david is somebody kind of like randall who does things all the time that could be a career He's just doing it for his own damn self. <laughs> and, t- and tomorrow it'll be something else, <laughs> yeah. probably. And it's just like, okay, you're doing that and you're putting those up on Instagram, but I'm not sure what that's all about. Uh, yes, so send us all your mud-covered things. Please uh, support the show if, uh, if you enjoyed. If you have been waiting 457 omnibus entries to finally get one about reggae and you were like, if they ever... Do a show about reggae. That's when I'm going to support the show. Good news. Generate some good Irie vibrations by going to patreon.com slash omnibus project. And uh, it would please Jaw, I'm sure, to have you uh, support the show. It would. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you can you can uh, share those vibes with other futurelings at the futurelings groups on Facebook and Reddit and so forth. It's a good time. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.